This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. I'm Alex Itner. This week, Media Business Matters welcomes Ira Deutschman to our studios for more talk about the film industry. Ira has worked in the film industry for more than 40 years as a producer, distributor, and marketer of independent films. Most recently, he was co-founder and managing partner of Emerging Pictures, a New York-based digital exhibition company sold in 2015. We're happy to have him with us to offer his perspective on the evolution and future of the film businesses. If you'd like to know more about Ira's background, take a look at the links available on the website. Ira Deutschman, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Ira, with such an array of experience, it was hard to know what questions to start with, uh, whether to talk about production, distribution, or exhibition in particular. More generally, in what ways is the U.S. film business most like the industry that you entered when you started out? I guess, I guess the thing that really hasn't changed all that much, in spite of the fact that many people will complain and tell you that things are worse than ever, but the fact is it's, it's never been easy to get people to go to see independent and offbeat films. It's, it's something that's very... Um, the expression we use in the industry is we refer to it as getting butts in seats, while it's true that it's perhaps more difficult now than it ever has been, it was never easy. It was always a challenge to create enough of an urgency that people would run to see something at their local movie theaters. And, and so I guess, you know, that's the part of it that I think hasn't changed as much as people think it has. The details change, but the central question, which is why do I re- need to go to a movie theater to see that movie, has really never changed. You know, even the studios deal with that all the time. The The central issue with, with marketing movies is that it seems like every time out you're starting from scratch. There's no continuity from one product to the next. If you'll excuse my use of the word product, which I know, you know, rankles some people that... Uh, <laughs> We're a business podcast. That's just fine. Okay. <laughs> we say content even. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, yes, the, uh, the fact is that, you know, the product, as you put it, there's no way to carry forward a fan base or a, or a success from one film to another. It's the reason why the studios lean toward franchises and toward sequels and things like that is that they're, they're literally trying to do the very thing that I just said is so difficult, which is to carry forward um, without having to start all over again. But, you know, as I, I was talking to a class earlier today and, and um, one of the concepts that came up is the fact that, you know, independent film is by its own nature what people want out of it is something idiosyncratic which automatically makes it really difficult to define. Are there big differences between what drives those butts into the seats for studio films versus independent films? Yeah, uh, you know, there's two types of movies that are made and, you know, Hollywood movies literally are commerce tapping into the cultural zeitgeist in the sense that, you know, whether it's comic books that come in and out of fashion or um, different genres that come in, out of, in and out of fashion or whatever, but they're built on the premise that the audience that matters is everybody, which is really different from the film as art kind of phenomenon actually begins in Europe, although it's picked up in the 70s by a lot of American filmmakers as well, and then becomes this thing called American independent film in the 80s. The fact is that the people who are attracted to those movies are just a very different audience who are interested in um, the experience of, of seeing something that may be a little bit more challenging, a little bit more 
um, thought-provoking, um, and there is a, a certain, I think there's also a certain snobbishness involved with it, you know, about um, doing something that uh, makes them feel superior to the mass audience or whatever. And I'm not saying that to, you know, put that down. It's not, it's, I don't consider that a negative thing. I think it's actually part of the commerce that we, um, that we trade in when we sell these movies is that we're trying to make people feel like this is something that they have to see because otherwise they wouldn't bother. Now, in what ways has the film business changed the most uh, since you started? It's mostly about, you have to, just to put it in perspective, um, when I first started in the business, um, I was lucky in that it was at a time when cinema was almost becoming a religion. The, the kinds of movies that were being made as a result of that were definitely impacted by, by that piece of information. The fact is there was, you know, you just have to, again, you have to remind people, particularly younger people, that there was no internet, there was no home video, no VHS, <laughs> no, no DVD, no Blu-ray, no nothing. So if you didn't see a movie in a theater or at a college film society, which was fulfilling the purpose of actually getting some of the smaller movies to be available in places where there was no art theater that was showing these kinds of movies, then there was no way to see the movie, period. So that created automatically a sense of urgency for those people who were interested in that kind of film. Whereas now, audiences are more or less spoiled into thinking that films are going to be available whenever, wherever, however yeah. <laughs> they want. And so it, it removes that sense of urgency. Um, I once had an argument with a filmmaker, and this is a long time ago already, but the context at that time was about um, the television and, and home video availability of movies. So we didn't even get into the world of streaming yet or any of that kind of stuff. But he came to me with this movie. It was called Pumping Iron 2, The Women, which, by the way, I don't know if it's generally available, but it's a really good movie. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the whole point that was being made was about the fact that there are so many people who are interested in the subject matter in the United States. Do you know how many people go to health clubs every week? Do you know how many? And it's, and it's like I had to turn around and go to him, you know, but those people in their leisure time, in their spare time, they're at the health club. They're not at the movies, you know? And, and in order to create the kind of urgency that would be necessary to get them to see the movie, I, I have this idea. The idea is this, which is let's open up the film for one night only everywhere across the country, everywhere, and then tell people that not only is it only just one night only, but we're going to burn the negative. You're never going to be able to see this film again. And that would be the only way I could think of of creating the necessary urgency to get people to go to the movie at, on that particular night. I mean, it's an extreme example, and nobody in their right mind would do that. <laughs> but, the, but the point is that, that it, I, I was just trying to make him understand that how difficult it really is to get people that motivated. That, that reminds me a lot of the of a theater show where you have like you have one you know or you have a performance and it's at a location and if you're not there you're not gonna see it right right exactly yeah I mean, and 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 it's it's the same thing is true you know um, you know for concerts or you know live appearances or whatever and it's one of the reasons why a lot of the exhibitors and distributors who are working in today's environment are trying to create events around the uh, the opening of a movie where right. You know, there's live Q&As or live discussions, or, or it could even be as simple as making sure that there's food and drink and, mm -hmm. you know, discussion among the audience. But it's some way of crystallizing that this event, this thing that's going to happen on this particular night is not going to be reproducible tomorrow night. So you better get your in that seat. I mean, discussing the way in which you know, film culture has changed, uh, so the difference between 
the behavior on college campuses, that there was this culture on going to see films. And I think one of the things that I notice in, in my own classrooms is instead now there's this possibility of making films that is now accessible in a way that it wasn't before. Do you think that in this environment in which the tools are more readily accessible, that there's as much of a, a focus on still screening and learning about sort of the craft of filmmaking just from watching a lot of film? So it's a really great question that brings up a kind of fundamental issue having to do with the fact that just because you have the tools doesn't make you good at it. The, the extreme version of it, what it reminds me of is like, you know, just because you know how to use Microsoft Word doesn't make you a writer. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, um, there is a craft involved with this and, and I don't know how you learn that craft just by doing, I think you do have to watch. And and beside the, what, what really irks me about that whole attitude is you wonder if somebody really is not interested in seeing movies, then why is it that they want to make movies? You know, it's like, it, I don't get that at all. And believe me, there's plenty of people out there who just think, you know, because they have an iPhone, it means that they're a filmmaker. That is... I have to say that I don't think that that's a change that's happened just in the last 10 years, but I do think it's become more dramatic, more, you know, like there's way more people who feel like they have the tools accessible and therefore, you know, they, they, they can go out there and say they're a filmmaker. If I were designing um, a program from scratch that was all about filmmaking, I would start with making them be steeped in film history. And the good news about that is that unlike the old days where we were dependent on the curators of film societies and art film theaters and et cetera to be able to feed us what they thought was important, the fact that everything is available means that somebody who's really interested in a film education, who really wants to absorb the full history of, of cinema, um, it's all there. I mean, they could they could devote themselves to it and you know, within a couple of years they could be you know, perhaps way more film literate than I was after all the schooling that I had, simply because there's so much more available. And, you know, I mean, make a list and just keep hammering at it because it's all out there. Now, where do you think the distinction lies between, like, a filmmaker and somebody with an iPhone who's kind of shooting something? Where, like, what kind of makes the difference between kind of more amateur and more professional work? I don't know that there's a direct answer to that, it's, okay. but it's but it's just like everything else. It's about practice and it's about understanding how to how to use the language of the mm -hmm. medium to the best impact. The reason why it's hard to answer the question is because there's so many different kinds of cinema, of and and so you know there's different different goals, different you know I mean a documentary perhaps that is trying to get a a specific message across to an audience versus a true work of art that. Um, which, by the way, might be a true work of art just from my perspective and maybe mm -hmm. not to somebody else's. You know, I mean, look, you can... The, the, the new uh, Wolverine movie that's out right now, Logan, is a really, really great movie from a cinema perspective. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, you know, the kind of movie that I typically seek out for myself. Mm -hmm. And then you put that side by side with Moonlight, and you know, which is a, another really, really great piece of cinema... And you know how do you how do you define one against the other? It's just you, you really know, can't. they're yeah. they're two complete they're seeking two completely different audiences there that, with the movies. Two different audiences. Two. I mean, on, on the other hand, they overlap in the person sitting in this chair because I I appreciated both of them. Given a choice, I'd go for Moonlight. But right. you know. <laughs> so in our conversations about television in the past, um, one of the arguments I've made is that the changes in distribution structure have 
been beneficial for television because they've opened up the business of television to the ability to tell more stories and, and be commercially profitable. Do you see something similar or different happening for film? It's a it's a, another really good question. I, I feel like um, eventually the barriers among all these various things are going to break down in ways in which, in perhaps very unpredictable ways, but in which the, the types of material that really do require or ask for the communal experience versus the things that can be just as easily consumed at home, that those differences will make themselves known and that the expression I sometimes use is that content seeks its own level. It seeks its own form of distribution. And sometimes there's confusion when there's change, but then eventually it kind of settles out. And what's interesting to me is that what television has found, and, and you know, it's I get a little annoyed when people talk about the golden age of television because, you know, the current golden age of television is that I feel like most of what they're referring to is actually just very long movies. They're really not traditional television by any stretch of the imagination. But what they have going for them is the very thing we were talking about earlier, which is the sense of continuity, which is the fact that by being serialized in some fashion, it if, if you can hook an audience, you've got them week after week after week. But if you think about it, it's not that different than what Disney's doing with the Star Wars movies now, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of serializing this story, the only difference is that the episodes are coming out sporadically rather than one week, one week at a time, or rather than as Netflix and Amazon do it, releasing the whole series at once. Mm -hmm. So it would not surprise me if those things start to cross over to each other, where um, you know, where suddenly Disney will release on the same day five different Star Wars movies, and you know, have have people running off to see them, or where the latest episode of and I, I love this example, which is like, just imagine if the final night of Game of Thrones last season were released wide on, in theaters, mm -hmm. okay. um, you know, before they were shown on HBO. We've talked about it. It would have been, have, yeah. would have been a, you know, a, a massive mm -hmm. success. Now, does HBO have an interest in doing that? Probably not, because it's not their business model. But I can see things like that mm -hmm. happening. So I think that the distinctions that people are making between television and movies right the second are defined by the place where you consume them. But in reality, I feel like this is all going to sort out in different ways eventually. Yeah, I look at what Disney... You mentioned Star Wars. I look at what Disney's doing with Marvel to an even bigger extent to what they're doing with Star Wars, with multiple franchises kind of conglomerating into one giant thing. Yep. You know, could you imagine, like, an era where, like, they'll release a Thor movie, a Captain America movie, an Iron Man movie all on the same day, and you kind of have to go... See them in any order. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've had this conversation uh, recently just about uh, some of the Netflix releases, such as the the four episodes or movies of Gilmore Girls. Right. I mean, if you look at the length, um, as well as the is it series of unfortunate events. A series of unfortunate yeah. events, yeah, it's where they had like the two part or essentially what are two hour movies kind of blocked together. Mm -hmm. Where these lines are really difficult to draw in terms of the form, and in some ways we're trying to draw these lines between form in a way that's making something that's more similar than it is different than let's say thinking about something that's designed for the mass audience whether it's a mass audience on television or a mass audience in a film theater versus the indie or we don't yet have a word i don't think in television for indie it's kind of well it's, it's, it's not television it's hbo uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or so they'd have us yes 
Yeah, I you know it, it, the other the other thing about that golden age of television thing that irks me a little bit too is that most of television is still the vast wasteland that it's always been. Even if you look at the quality channels, they're depending on a small number of very high quality and also very expensive programming that carries their franchise forward and allows people to um, justify somehow spending whatever they're spending per month to be subscribers. When in reality, if you look at those same programs, uh, the same channels, whether you talk about HBO or Netflix or Amazon or any of them, the vast majority of what they're putting out is garbage. Or if you look at AMC and you, you say, okay, well, they had Mad Men and they had whatever that... Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, <laughs> and they had, you know... Um, now they have Better Call Saul. Okay, Better Call Saul, or what was the, the one with the vampires? Uh, the, the zombies? The, the Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, yes. <laughs> yeah, it shows you how sophisticated I am about this stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, okay, so they had at any given time two or maybe three programs that were really strong, critically gathered an audience, et cetera, et cetera, somehow justified the carriage of that channel by the multiple system operators, you know, or whatever. But then tune in to that channel like any other other 24 hours a day. And what do you have? Reality TV, you have reruns, you have... AMC and FX rely very heavily on movies. Yeah, but mostly garbage, mostly garbage. So, so yeah, so Golden Age, mm, yeah, maybe maybe enough Golden Age if you add it all together to program maybe two channels, but not thousands of channels. Now, I, I think one of the things we've talked about in terms of trying to understand the way internet distributed services, such as, as Netflix and Amazon, you know, I, I often forget, because I think primarily of television, I forget that they also distribute films, but um, thinking about them as internet distributed television, right. uh, and the advantage that they have in the ability, the technological abilities of the internet and, and the way in which they're not forced to fill out a schedule and the right. way in which a lot of these practices and concepts that we've always associated with television uh, aren't necessarily inherent to television, but were connected with our previous distribution technologies. And so, yeah, I think it's a fascinating time to think about how those services might change you know, even these notions of television. Yeah, I think I think linear television is a goner. I mean, you know, this this the the, the whole idea of filling up twenty four hours a day with programming is just ludicrous. Inefficient. <laughs> yeah, very inefficient, right? Uh, but to that point, what do you think of the what of Amazon and Netflix coming into the market as a, a buyer of film and you know whether and there's lots of questions there. How important is theatrical release? Uh, is it really just important that these services with tens of well, over 100 million subscribers worldwide, you know, that, that those are becoming uh, ways for people to see films that they likely would not have been able to see unless they were in major cities before? Um, yes and no. I think in the near term, it's good news if you are among the handful of people who have enough of a reputation that you can actually get your foot in the door because at least there are buyers out there that are ready to finance um, movies. And to the extent that they're interested in the content that you have to offer, they're paying decent prices and they're you know, getting behind them from a marketing perspective. But there is a dichotomy um, between, when people talk about Netflix and Amazon side by side, there is a dichotomy between the two of them that's a really crucial thing that I don't know at this moment how it's really gonna play out. Because Netflix very consciously modeled their entire business model on um, on HBO, it's it was all about modeling. Uh, you know, HBO's model is about water cooler talk, making sure that um, they're they're creating a proposition that makes people feel like they have to pay that monthly 
fee on, on a monthly basis. And the, to the extent that HBO has ever dabbled in any sort of theatrical, it's always been um, just uh, window dressing in order to allow the films to be the films, sometimes it's documentary, sometimes it's mm-hmm. fiction films or whatever, to qualify for the Oscars, which from their perspective, uh, winning Oscars or getting nominated for Oscars is just a really good way of advertising HBO. Mm-hmm. Netflix does exactly the same thing. They just frankly don't care about theatrical except to the extent that it creates the window dressing for them. And so films that people actually thought could have some theatrical potential are literally being thrown away theatrically by Netflix. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're doing the the New York or LA required release to make sure that they're Oscar eligible and then that's the end of it. Amazon, on the other hand, um, has been embracing theatrical and one wonders whether that's a temporary thing in order to <laughs> differentiate themselves from Netflix because after all, filmmakers are not happy about not having the theatrical window available to them. Some of them walk into that not caring but there's many filmmakers who do care, who really want to, to have their films seen on the big screen with a communal audience. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that Amazon can say, we do this and Netflix doesn't, means that when they're competing for a film, that, you know, unless the money is vastly different, that, you know, the chances are that Amazon is going to be the one to win out in that war. So you, you have to look at that and go, okay, which one's going to blink first? Is it going to be that Netflix is going to start doing more theatrical or is it going to be that you know, Amazon is going to eventually stop feeling like it's necessary to do that. We've seen a couple of cycles already where um, there's been a couple of film festivals where Amazon has clearly dominated and, and walked away with all the hot movies that were there. But then the most recent Sundance, Netflix did that. So you know, was that because Amazon just didn't have the appetite because they're full up? Or was it because um, Netflix is make, suddenly making other kinds of promises. I mean, yeah. or did they really outbid them that tremendously? Uh, we have a lot of questions about where video and entertainment fits in Amazon's broader business profile. Yeah, yeah. Because on one hand, you know, I think it's this notion of value added to the subscription, but you know, the most cynical read of, of the whole strategy there is that that's just about driving Prime membership because they know that that leads you to buy more stuff and that. It's more. It's more about the shopping than the right than the video there, or that the measurement someday becomes you know this. After watching this, people bought this much. Mm -hmm. After watching that, I I think there's a little bit of both of those things, Um, and I think it's pretty brilliant. I have to say, not not that I'm a huge fan, but but I I do enjoy the fact that I never have to buy toilet paper in a store anymore because it gets (laughs) delivered once a month, you know. (laughs) And and, uh, that comes free with my Prime subscription. Right, uh, (laughs) two very different things. Yes. Or maybe they won't be in the future, I guess. Yeah, but it does, but, you know, like if you want to look at the more nefarious side of it, one thinks of the company store, you know, the the old, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Matewan, which is a movie that John Sayles made that I worked on the marketing of, um, but it was about the old coal miner days when coal miners got paid not in cash but in script that could only oh, be used at the company, company store. store. And, uh, you know, I just worry that we're heading in a direction where Amazon is literally the company store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I think in Netflix as well in ways, um, and their business is more narrow, but just the, the control of the market. Um, I think we're already to the point where on the television side, it seems as though it would be impossible for another service to launch that doesn't already own a vast library of content in the way Netflix 
you know, sort of against the rules of business, was able to do that because of when they came in and because of how they're considered more as a tech company than mm -hmm. in terms of the metrics of traditional entertainment. I would worry about Apple, too. I mean, you know, like they, they have an enormous database of users and, right. and have everybody's credit card, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're already talking about expanding from music into um, original content. I don't know how quickly they're going to do it, but well, they, they certainly have, have... Carpool Karaoke and a reality show, um, reality competition about apps. Film, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah or, and so will that kind of vertical integration come from the tech side? Or I, I guess the thing that's been interesting to me as well is the way that the major studios, I, I can't say that they haven't tried to be, you know, at vertically integrating digital distribution themselves, but for the most part, they, they've let others do it. And right. when there's really, from the business perspective, a big advantage there to being able to take those films direct to, to households. And uh, to some of your earlier comments, you know, begin to perhaps change this notion of experience. You know, I mean, we don't, I think as consumers, we're not cult to think about who makes our movies, but you know, could you imagine a future where you subscribe to Warner Brothers and you know every two weeks there's a new Warner Brothers film um, and, and you just well to some extent I think that they're counting on that. Um, I'm not sure it's a smart business move, frankly, but because how many channels are people really going to subscribe to? Mm -hmm. I mean, we already see it in cable where. You know, people are rebelling against the idea of paying for anything that they really don't watch. The bundles are unwinding. Yeah, the bundles are unwinding, but they're going to rebundle, I yeah. think, yeah. but in a, diff in a different way, because right. otherwise I don't think it can work. But uh, but I do think that both Netflix and Amazon, and to some extent Apple, is probably going to do this too. I think that they're already positioning themselves to be the center of the bundle. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where um, I, I, I think the closest thing right the second is actually more Hulu. Um, the way that Hulu has pulled together the content from a number of different suppliers um, where they're offering many, many different channels, more like a cable bundle. Mm -hmm. They just don't have as much original content yet. And they actually do have an actual cable bundle coming in the next, uh, probably this year, right? I think April, much yeah. like what uh, YouTube or Google announced last week. And Apple has something in the works. We don't know quite what it is, but there, there are some conversations happening. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, concern about being left out of yeah. Uh, it's still only roughly 10 to 20 million homes that are, are leaving cable mm -hmm. uh, because the numbers uh, or the, the value prospect actually isn't that good when you start looking at what happens to your internet bill, uh, especially what would happen if we got rid of net neutrality. Um, and the, But the unbundling is going to be bad news for independent filmmakers because there's no business model that can support a channel that has that few viewers. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, a, you know, so you're going to see things like Sundance Channel, IFC Films, mm -hmm. a lot of kind of niche channels probably disappearing um you know maybe they can become a label within a larger bundle or something like that but um to survive with their current business model that you know mm -hmm. as the cable bundle begins to fracture it's that's the stuff that's going to go first mm -hmm. the other thing that may change which i think could be a good thing is uh the nature of the whole sports business yeah um because right now sports are the beneficiary of the cable bundle more than any other aspect of it and there are so many people who are subsidizing mm -hmm. um, the professional sports businesses that really have no interest in right. it and as that begins to narrow down to the people who are really interested in it and fragment also mm -hmm. because you know like i would easily subscribe and do to major league baseball but i have no i don't care about any other sport 
So would I really want to pay if I had to pay separately for ESPN? No, you know, I mean, it's like, so, but what the, the implications of that are really interesting because we're the ones paying those multi-million dollar salaries to the, to the actual Mm -hmm. athletes, you know? Very true. (laughs) (laughs) The things that we subsidize and the things that we don't in, in, in our culture are fascinating. What do you think is the least understood aspect of the film business? Hmm, wow, that's a big question. <laughs> or one of them. It's always hard when yeah, you either yeah. one. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back to what I said to begin with, which is how difficult it is to put butts in seats. Mm-hmm. Um, the, because that's not just misunderstood by the public in general, but it's misunderstood by people in the business who, you know, like I, I can't tell you how many filmmakers who believe that just because they made it, people are going to come. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just not that simple. Or just because they have a database that gives them, you know, a couple of thousand names of people who they know are interested in this specific subject matter because they've signed up to be on my mailing list and da 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 da, and it's like, yeah, I mean, if you say one night only and I'll be there in person and you know be signing autographs, then out of that thousand people, if you actually get a ten percent return on it, you're doing really good. But if you're talking about supporting a week's run at a theater. It's like, you know, those same 10% of that thousand are going to show up spread out over a week, and that's yeah. not a business model. Right. So I think those are the things that are really most most misunderstood. You know, the other thing I, I would say, which is more semantics than anything else, and I don't know whether the general public really gives a shit about any of this, but I just think the whole notion of what people consider to be an independent film is also a, a real problem from my perspective. I don't consider films that are, uh, you know, that cost $25 million and are distributed by Fox Searchlight to be an independent film, and yet somehow they get all lumped together in that way. Um, I I remember a a moment in the, I think it was in the 80s, when there was a a conference that was pulled together at Sundance of people who were in marketing and distribution of so-called indie movies. The idea was just, just have an open conversation among all these people who were ostensibly competitors or whatever to talk about the future of independent film and you know what could we do to make these films bigger more successful etc and you know among the topics that were brought up were well we got to get out of this art house uh, ghetto we've got to make sure that you know american independent films are are seen as being more accessible we have to get them into the multiplex and then there was a publicist who was there who stood up and talked about how um, there should be a an industry-wide campaign promoting independent film as a label, mm-hmm. sort of like what the milk industry mm-hmm. has done, or you know, others, and um, and that you know the the whole idea is that independent film should become a thing that people aspire to or whatever. And when I think back about that conversation, what leaps into my mind is be careful what you wish for, <laughs> because in a way that's exactly what ended up happening. Independent film became almost a genre, a thing. Yeah as opposed to um, being defined mm-hmm. as just what's not mainstream or what's not you know, specific or whatever. The fact that the multiplexes and the major studios kind of got into that business in some half-assed way um, has actually poisoned it for the people who really mm-hmm. are interested in having smaller movies out there because all of a sudden we're competing against marketing budgets that are way bigger than they should be for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, it's... Um, so that... that Part of it, I think, is a little misunderstood also. You've talked a little bit here and, and elsewhere about sort of changing the, the way exhibition works in terms of trying to make it more event-based and a better experience. 
I mean, we're seeing right now this interesting standoff between the content creators and, and the, the exhibitors about when things can be distributed and maybe shortening some of those windows. And this has been a discussion that's been going on for a long time. Change seems really difficult. How will we have any change in exhibition? You know, where, I, I think... Where would, where would the change come from? Yeah. yeah. As we've talked about before, we think the Game of Thrones, you know, idea is a great <laughs> one. I would love to go see that on it the would, big screen. And it's something that's not unrealistic, too. Like, so, maybe it might be after it airs, but they've already done a couple of big episodes on the big screen. Yeah, I you know, there's a couple of obstacles there, one of which is just that HBO doesn't really care. Yeah. Um, but the other obstacle, um, in some cases, it may not be true for Game of Thrones, um, there are different deals with the unions and mm. music licenses right. and things like that that are different for theatrical versus something mm-hmm. that's designed mm-hmm. directly for television. So so those are things that would have to be dealt with. But um, but going back to your original question, the all change begins with the independent sector. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt that there will be a ton of experimentation coming up with various... Um, windowing strategies and um, you know ways of trying to leverage theatrical for ancillary value and the reverse where um, you know I can see scenarios in which films are available um, you know on various other platforms first and then when word of mouth hits a sufficient portion of it you yank it off and make people go to a theater to see it or you know or or where you know the Game of Thrones idea is only one piece of a larger idea which is that you know if you if you take the new Star Wars trilogy and you show episode one and two on Netflix and then episode three is in theaters, or, th- or think about the Lord of the Rings just mm-hmm. as a better example perhaps of, of a way that you could leverage that in order to make it a huge theatrical situation. So I, I think a lot of this is going to happen. You know, on the one hand, one has to be protective of the exhibitors who are fighting the good fight and who are the ones who have that incredibly daunting proposition of getting butts and seats. Mm -hmm. And so I can understand them being incredibly protective of their exclusivity and not wanting these other markets to be taking that one thing away from them that they have that actually gives them a little bit of protection. But I think that the, the real solution doesn't lie in being protective about it. The real solution is about being incredibly flexible and sizing up each piece of content piece by piece in mm-hmm. terms of the best strategy for that particular piece of content. And um, and then I think models will emerge that'll show them that there are times when it can work just fine, the reverse direction from what they're used to, other times where that protectionism, if you will, um, is completely justified. And, um, you know, and, and it's another one of those things that I think is just gonna shake out over time. But there's no doubt that the whole idea of that theatrical always comes first and is this length before it becomes that, there's almost nobody who thinks that's going to remain in place. Now, we've talked a lot about what will be changing in the film industry moving forward. What do you think will be the biggest constant? What do you think will be the thing that, you know, as film moves forward, won't change kind of no matter how other parts of the industry do? Well, you know, again, it depends on what you're calling film. Um, right. <clears throat> but, um, but, you know, if you look at the larger context of just, you know, linear stories or even sometimes not so linear stories being told, yeah, I think, I think that in the larger context of everything that's going on, what isn't going to change is people's appetites for good stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, where they get them and how they uh, consume them and, 
you know, what platform they're using and even what form they take. Because after all, we're, we're walking into a world where virtual reality is becoming mm-hmm. something that people are paying attention to. And, right. you know, gaming is merging to some extent with, you know, linear storytelling. And there's a lot of th- things on the horizon that are going to be changing the nature of what we consume, how we consume it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the need for humans to continue to have stories to be told and to, and to be heard is, is going nowhere. Um, and, and then in terms of just the, the part of it that is my particular area, meaning theatrical movie going, I don't think that's going away either. I, I do think that the, if I were going to worry about a segment of the marketplace, I would be way more worried about the major studio business than I would be about the art film business. Because I do think that they're the ones who are competing directly with all of this other stuff that's out there. Whereas I feel like the art film business may be defining itself in a smaller way than used to be the case, a more narrow way than used to be the case. But I don't think it's going away in the same way that opera never went away and the ballet never went away. Radio never um, went away. Yeah, yeah. I Television's mean, it's, still kicking. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like it, it just it just means that, that um, the medium in effect becomes its own um, its own little world that exists perhaps in a vacuum where you know not only does the content remain true to what a theatrical movie going experience used to be but where the venue itself becomes part of the experience it's like you know when, when you go to a place like the Michigan theater you're not going simply because of what they're playing but you're also going for the experience and that experience is going to be part of the attraction well, that sounds like a great way to end this. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And now it's time for our favorite segment that ends each show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching this week? I just finished Incorporated, which was a sci-fi series that unfortunately I just learned was not renewed. Uh, but it stands all right as a, as a one season. It, it has enough of an ending um, to make it satisfying, although it could have gone on. It's, I'm not a big sci-fi fan, typically. This This is the Sci-Fi Network, right? Sci-Fi Network, uh, a project from Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. It had a lot of attention. It's it's an imagined future. It's not necessarily a great future. It's a future (laughs) instead of governments. We have uh, corporations running the world. Um, It feels like... Wait, you're saying this is science fiction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels a little too timely at times. There, there are a few really good uh, jabs here and there. I mean, basically, the premise of it is that the U.S. is now uninhabitable because of climate change. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so uh, there's an early uh, plot point about how uh, they've had to build a wall between uh, America and Canada to keep the Americans from uh, from immigrating illegally. Uh, so, yeah, timely, timely things. But anyway, uh, it was an interesting show, and uh, I enjoyed it. But uh, alas, it, uh, I think, has fallen to the peak TV situation and I just honest, didn't get the buzz to I had break not through. even heard of it, Yeah, it, <laughs> which is it, surprising given how much TV I hear of. It debuted in January, sort of a little bit after the, the critics' tour. Uh, I so heard about it. it kind of flew under the radar yeah, there. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. How about you, Alex? What are you watching? Well, I went home recently, and when I go home, I always have stories to come back and tell about the theater. So I saw a couple of productions on Broadway. I saw Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. It's a musical based off a 70-page slice of War and Peace, the Tolstoy novel. Uh, it's got Josh Groban in the lead role. You know, that, that, that guy. Yeah. He, he can sing. I've heard that. 
it, it was quite good. The second act was much stronger than the first, because uh, the second act is where the story really gets going, and, like, you actually have stakes to the drama instead of... My friend looked at me, like, 15 minutes into the show and asked me, what's the conflict here? And I was not able to answer that, but it definitely became clear toward the second act. It was very immersive, too, with cast members kind of moving all around the theater, and they had audience members on the stage, and the cast members moved all around those audience members and interacted with some of them. It was a very kind of cool experience that I can't say I've really had anything like before. And I also saw the new revival of Miss Saigon, uh, the very famous Bubil and Schoenberg musical back on Broadway after playing London. This production played London and brought its two lead actors as the engineer and Kim to Broadway with them. There's a helicopter. It lands on stage. Cool. It's a very, it's at times very big and very broad and at times very small and intimate. Um, but, it, you know, I had never heard any the music from Miss Saigon. I just knew about the helicopter and it really, <laughs> it was very good. Although it did have the late, very much lame is everything is huge. Like the songs are big and bombastic in some ways. And I really enjoyed it though. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes and the Google Play Store by going to play.google.com music and typing in our name. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. You can find Ira online at iradeutschman.com. You can follow him on Twitter at nyindieguy. And you can find me at Alex Zintner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon.